Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Patriots Beat Podcast for the week of May 30th, 2016. I'm your host, Michael Longe. I hope everybody enjoyed their Memorial Day weekend. And we have a ton of stuff to talk about on this week's show, as always. A bunch of new developments in the Deflategate saga, so we'll obviously get through all those. We'll talk about that. Uh, But we're really going to get to the big news uh, of this week, which is organized team activities have gotten underway. They started last week, or last Monday, I should say. And we're going to have some talk about position battles. We're going to talk about all these different things. A bunch of new players coming into the fold. So lots of stuff to talk about on that front. We'll also have a great guest today, Kevin Duffy of MassLive.com, Patriots beat writer. He'll be joining us to talk about his thoughts on the team uh, this early part of the season, as well as his thoughts on the Deflategate saga and everything else like that. And uh, we're going to close out the show as well to talk a little bit about... um, the NFL and the congressional report that came out this past week concerning them and uh, pulling their aid from a certain concussion researcher. So uh, we'll talk about that as well. But let's get right into it, guys. Let's start off with Deflategate. We'll get the boring stuff out of the way first. Uh, a couple couple things. Obviously, the biggest news is Tom, I'm sure everybody's heard by now. Tom Brady has filed his appeal for an en banc hearing. He wants the the to be heard in front of the entire Second Circuit Court, which I believe is 13 judges. And so he's got to get a majority, so he has to get 7 out of 13 judges to agree with him in order to get the suspension once again uh, wiped away. So we'll see. I mean, the chances really aren't great. We've we've kind of known this for a while. When, when these uh, circuit courts like this rule in favor of a, an entity like the NFL, a big business type thing, it's generally not going to get pushed back. But as I've been saying for a while, and as I, you know, I've heard other people in the, the Boston sports radio world say, you know, it is two to two. I mean, Judge Berman and Judge Katzman both sided with Tom Brady. And Judge Chin and Judge uh, Parker both sided with the NFL. So in my book, that's two to two. That means it's a tie. And that means we need to go to a third party again to figure this out. And so at this point, it's just, you know, if if they don't grant the, the hearing and you the Second Circuit Court of Appeals won't hear it, uh, Tom Brady's only other legal option would be to take this to the Supreme Court, which honestly, to be honest, guys, I really don't want that to happen. I really don't. I don't want it to get that far. I'm all for Tom Brady playing. Listen, I'm a Patriots fan. I've been a Patriots fan my whole life. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to look at this with objective eyes and say, where are we as a country, unfortunately? I got to say, like, where are we as a country if deflated footballs are being heard by the Supreme Court? 
it's just it I can't wrap my head around it and I need this to be over before it gets that far so I really do hope that the second circuit court of appeals will hear this and I hope they grant Tom Brady his his uh, reinstatement because if Brady loses he's still going to the Supreme Court that's I mean if as long if he doesn't get his way that's as far as it's going so I really hope it doesn't get that far but in, in all honesty, it, pro- it probably will get that far because I don't think that the Second Circuit Court of Appeals is going to hear this uh, this request. I don't think they're going to grant it. So, uh, But we'll get to that. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, obviously, uh, Demora Smith, the head of the Players Union, has been kind of on a rampage over the past week and a half talking about Roger Goodell in several different areas. We're talking about the Deflategate saga, talking about his handling of the concussion issue, which we'll talk about a little later on. Um, All sorts of different things said, look, Roger Goodell has been rebuked for overstepping his, his, his bounds four different times in the past, including Ray Rice, including, you know, Adrian Peterson, including all these different ones. Uh, The bounty gate with the saints, all of these, uh, he has been rebuked by, as another arbitrator because his punishments just didn't fit. So what's to say that it won't happen again, I guess is Demora Smith's point. So, but look, that's, so that's what happened. So Brady has officially filed the appeal. The deadline was, was last Monday, May uh, 23rd. And he, he filed it on that day at five o'clock that night. So that's happened. That's official. We're going to see, I'm sure we'll find out within probably a few weeks whether that hearing is going to happen or not, and then, you know, subsequently find out when that hearing will happen, if it does happen. So, uh, but there were a couple other things in Deflategate uh, news that, that came up over the past week, and one of them is really interesting to me. Uh, well, both of them are really interesting to me. One of them, I think, is a lot more influential, I should say, than the other. So, uh, we'll start off with the Patriots. So, for the most part, the New England Patriots have kind of kept out of the Deflategate business. They've kind of not really had a position. They put up the Deflategate, uh, uh, Wells Report and Context website, all that stuff. But they never really officially came out and said, we're behind Tom Brady, right? They never officially did that, like with an official statement. And this looks like this is as as official of a statement as you're going to get. The New England Patriots as a team filed an amicus brief on the behalf of Tom Brady. Uh, in this appeal. So for those of you who don't know what an amicus brief is, it's it's I, it's a, a friend of the court type brief. It's a, a third party who comes in with uh, kind of uh, to present new information to the court, things like that. And uh, they really don't have any real standing because a judge can a judge can listen, listen to the amicus brief and allow it into into testimony or whatever, or a judge, can just simply ignore it. They don't have to. They can ignore it if they want to, basically. So these two amicus briefs that were filed this past week could, in fact, mean nothing. But it is worth it to talk about them because I think one of them will actually be a little more influential than the other. So starting with the Patriots, uh, they filed an eight-page brief on Wednesday, which you know basically said they the Patriots said, quote, they stand to lose their all-pro quarterback for 25% of the upcoming regular season based on a severely flawed process. The Patriots strongly believe uh, nobody tampered with the footballs during the AFC Championship game. So, they also said the Second Circuit Court panel, quote, 
endorsed the outcome of a highly manipulated and fundamentally unfair process designed and used by the commissioner to reach and justify a predetermined outcome. So, quote, it renders meaningless the vital protections afforded by a bargain for right to appeal and to obtain and present pertinent evidence. So, and it says, uh, finishes it off with, its impacts will be felt far beyond the NFL. So this is, in my opinion, this is good. This is Robert Kraft fighting back at Roger Goodell. This is him finally sticking up the middle finger and saying, I hate what you've done to my team. I can't believe you've taken it this far. And I'm finally sick of it. I just need, I need to be heard. I need to say this. And so he released this, you know, sent this to the court as a, as a, an amicus brief. Could it be heard? Maybe. I think it was more of a PR thing. I think it was more of Robert Kraft going out there and saying, listen, I still haven't forgiven this guy, Goodell, for taking away my draft picks, taking away my money, taking away my quarterback, all these different things. I still hate this guy. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what I got out of this one. It is kind of significant, though. I mean, it's the first time a team has filed any sort of legal papers against the NFL, a team. A team slash ownership group has filed legal papers against the NFL since Al Davis sued the league back when he was trying to move all over creation. When he moved from, you know, Oakland to L.A. and he wanted to move to Anaheim and he wanted to do all these different things. Um, he, w- he was suing the league and, and, you know, that was back in the, the 80s and 90s that he was doing that. So uh, I, I, it's fairly significant, but I in the end, I don't think it's I think it was more of a PR type of a thing for the Patriots to release it. The other amicus brief that was filed, however, I think might have a little more water. Now, granted, it could hold no water because the judges could just elect to not pay attention to them and just simply ignore them. But this one looks like it's got some legs. I mean, another eight-page brief, it was filed on behalf of Tom Brady by 21 different professors from all these different prestigious universities in the country, uh, MIT, Cal, Michigan, uh, USC, Stanford, Delaware, Purdue, the University of Pennsylvania, Boston College, Minnesota, all these different schools, had uh, professors from all these different schools filed an ambiguous brief basically that focuses on the ideal gas law and says that, you know, with uh, the ideal gas law necessarily causing the air pressure in footballs to drop during the first half of the game, tampering with the footballs would have resulted in Uh, dramatically lower readings than the actual numbers measured by the NFL. So, and while that's good and fine, we've heard all these different science things from, for a long time. And honestly, it's, it's, it makes your eyes glaze over because you just don't want to hear it. I I hated this kind of stuff in science because the math and the, all the, I just hated it. But this, this kind of caught my eye right here included with the written presentation is a claim that the professors have obtained field pressure data for more than 10,000 outdoor NFL games played since 1960. And so with that, so 10,000 outdoor NFL games since 1960, approximately 61% of all games would have included footballs that dropped in air pressure below the minimum of 12.5 PSI if the footballs were inflated to 13 PSI at kickoff. Now, that would be because of air temperature changes, air pressure changes, things like that. Now, 
these are scientists. Now, I'm going to probably go with what they're saying. But I mean, I haven't looked at the data for myself. I probably wouldn't be able to decipher it if I did. But there are certain things you can look for. I mean, I've taken weather and climate classes in the past in, in college. I mean, there are things you can look for to figure out, you know, obviously barometric pressure and air temperature and all these different things, moisture content, all these different things have an effect on the air pressure inside of a football. So if they're looking at 10,000 different games and they're probably running simulations through computers and finding that 61% of games would have air pressure drop below 12 and a half, then, I mean, that's pretty damning evidence, I would say. Um, if we're talking about footballs inflated, this is what they said. For footballs inflated towards the lower end of the range, as the Patriots supposedly were, right? Tom Brady says he likes his at the lower end of the range, right? That's kind of been a documented fact. So if we're saying, okay, so the Patriots have theirs maybe set to 12.5 PSI, roughly 82% of all games would have included footballs below the minimum PSI level if that was the case. So here's a quote. Now, it's a kind of a long quote, but I'm going to read it for you anyway. Quote, as professors... We cannot fathom how it is permissible to impose punishment for the possibility of a negligible increment of pressure loss when underinflated footballs are common to NFL games, when laws of physics cause much larger pressure drops, and when the very possibility of an additional increment of pressure loss was generated from assumptions of the league's choosing rather than data. So... Uh, in this name of science, we support the petition for a rehearing was like the final line in the in the amicus brief and another eight page brief. So look, I mean, right there, they just said underinflated footballs would be common to most NFL games because Eureka, most NFL games are played in October, November, December in colder climates. I mean, come on, people like it's. It's almost too simple. You know what I mean? It's, just, it's crazy. But look, the professors seem to be behind the science portion of it. I've always, I've, I admit it fully, I have never been too enthralled by the science part of the deflate gate because while it makes sense to me, I don't necessarily know the ideal gas law and I'm not a scientist and I don't know how it works. But if the scientists are telling me that the ideal gas law is working its effect and it it would have affected the air pressure in those footballs, then I'm going to probably go with that. I'll probably go with it. So um, I think that's the amicus brief. If there's any amicus brief that's going to hold any water, I think that's the one. The one by the professors, simply because of the science and the the appearance of, of data. It appears that they have, if they say they have you know 10,000 outdoor NFL games, the air air temperature data for that stuff, then... That's that's data. That is kind of irrefutable, right? That's what I always em em envision data to be. Facts. Numbers. Things that you can't manipulate, right? So, I don't know. I'd probably go with that with that amicus brief if, if I was to choose any to hold any water. But, like we said, they could just go ahead and ignore every amicus brief and just say, no, we're not hearing it, sorry. And there's, they're well in their right to do that. So, um, But there's your Deflategate uh, updates for for the past week. Um, look, it's been I've been sick of it for a long time. I'm sure everybody else has. Hopefully, this will be over sooner rather than later so we can get 
we can get on to talking about actual football, but unfortunately, I think it'll probably be sticking around for a little while longer, at least until the beginning of next season, at least. So, um, but with that being said, let's talk some actual football, guys. Let's talk some actual football. Uh, organized team activities have started. They're underway. There was three practices this past week on Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, uh, with the Thursday practice being open to the media, the first one that was open to the media. Um, as far as the timeline for the rest of uh, OTAs and training camps and things like that, um, there will be another week of practices, uh, two more practices this week on June 1st and June 2nd, and a three-day mini camp the next week from June 7th to June 9th. And three more days of OTAs the next week after that, June 13th, 14th, and 16th. So, And then they'll have about a month off and then hit training camp hard at the uh, mid to end of July. So there's your timeline, but really what we're going to talk about this week is kind of just an, an outline because, you know, it really is early in the process. These guys just got out on the field. It's a lot of conditioning drills. It's a lot of, you know, getting to know the playbook. It's a lot of kind of just running around and working with each other and things like that. But it is an opportunity to at least start talking about uh, position battles, and things like that. Like, uh, there's several positions this year that, that are going to be up for. Uh, there's going to be chances to make the roster. So, I mean, I'm looking at running back, wide receiver, uh, defensive line, offensive line, defensive tackle, I mean, defen- uh, defensive back. Because, I mean, there's really only two proven defensive backs, and we have one second-round pick. So, I mean, there's a lot of room for for players to make an impact and, and come out here and, and show what they've got. So let's start with um, let's start with running back right now. We'll, we'll say that the locks for the roster, locks for the roster, I'm, uh, Dion Lewis, obviously, coming off the ACL surgery, which, by the way, I should mention this, um, I believe it was Mike Reese of ESPN Boston released a report this past week that said uh, Dion Lewis is actually on track to be ready for the season opener, which which is great. I mean... Uh, he tore his ACL back in November, November 8th against uh, Washington, had surgery 10 days later, which means he's had just about six months of recovery time so far. Um, Patriots taking a very slow, conservative approach. He was not at OTAs this week, this past week. Um, but from reports, I mean, some close to Lewis say he's as close to a month away from being able to to take contact and things like that. So... Obviously, that bodes really well for for him being able for the season opener because, I mean, you have to assume that he he probably won't push it too hard in training camp. I'm sure he won't play at all in the the preseason. And then, so, I mean, you're looking at another three months at least before he's playing on the field in an NFL game. I mean, he, he should be back by then. He should be back by the season opener. So... I mean, we'll put him as a roster lock, obviously. LeGarrette Blunt signed a one-year deal. I don't necessarily think that makes him a roster lock, but I think he's probably as close to a lock as you can get. And then after that, man, it really... It, it's a crapshoot, to be honest. I mean, I'm looking at guys like uh, Brandon Bolden, who has been on this team for uh, several years as a special teams contributor. He comes in and you know runs the ball a little bit. Not necessarily a great running back, but... A great special teams contributor, and we all know that Belichick loves guys like that. 
uh, Donald Brown, who was a former first-round pick by Indianapolis and had a couple good years in Indianapolis. He was signed to a one-year deal over the over the summer. So uh, as coming in as a free agent, he might have a chance to make the roster. The kid DJ Foster, who I talked about a couple weeks ago on the show, who was an undrafted free agent, uh, who the Patriots went after, actively went out after him. He had a, a phenomenal high school career, a phenomenal college career in Arizona, uh, Arizona State in college. And I think he's a guy, he's a he's a Shane Vereen, Deion Lewis type guy. He can run, he can catch, he can do all these things. He's got a lot of burst. So I think he's a guy that could, that will will more than likely make the roster. So... And then there's also Tyler Gaffney, Joey Yosefa, and James White, who, you know, played a big role last year due to Deion Lewis's injury. So, I mean, that's tough. When you look at that and you say, okay, well, that's seven different running backs, and we're talking about probably two more running back spots, three max. It's rare that they're going to keep four running backs on the roster, though. So we're probably looking at three running backs on the roster. If you have Deion Lewis, and then you have probably LeGarrette Blunt as your as your big back, right? There's only room for one other guy. Is it going to be Brandon Bolden? Is it going to be Donald Brown? Is it going to be this kid DJ Foster? What about James White? I mean, there's a lot of different directions you can go there. And uh, we're going to ask uh, Kevin Duffy of MassLive.com about that in a little bit. What is the running back situation looking like? There's a lot of different uh, positions that, in- including the next one, wide receiver. I mean, if you look at the locks, we have a, a great core at the top. There's Edelman, there's Amendola, there's the new guy, Chris Hogan, and then the draft pick, Malcolm Mitchell. There's your four locks. You're probably only going to carry one other wide receiver, maybe two. And you're looking at guys like Keyshawn Martin, who signed a, a, a one or a two year deal this past week, uh, year, this past offseason. Nate Washington, who was brought in. And then there's still Aaron Dobson, who we're still waiting for him to blossom as a second round pick right physically gifted he just can't catch the football can't stay on the field is Chris Harper who will probably never see the field again because of that drop punt <clears throat> excuse me last year against Denver and then there's the draft pick Devin Lucian and uh, DeAndre Carter as well who I believe was an undrafted free agent so I mean looking at that I don't even know who you would add to that. I mean, probably Keyshawn Martin simply because you signed him to a contract. You know? So there's there's another area of uh, position battle. Um, the offensive line, I mean, I said before the draft that I think the Patriots needed to go after tackles, offensive tackles, to start addressing the fact that Sebastian Vollmer will probably be finished pretty soon and Nate Solder has already had a season-ending season ending injury and all this stuff, So, and you still need to swing tackle because Marcus Cannon is a turnstile. I mean, then they went out and they drafted like two guards, and they still have all their other guards coming back. If you look at, if you look at the interior offensive line, there's three starting jobs, and there's all these guys. David Andrews, Brian Stork, who both have played center and could play guard, but will probably play. We probably have Stork at center. Andrews can play guard. Some guard. Uh, Jonathan Cooper, who you just traded away Chandler Jones to acquire. So he'll probably play right away. Um, there's still Trey Jackson, Josh Klein, Shaq Mason, Joe Thune, who you drafted in the third round. Uh, Ted Karras, Chris Barker. Like, all of these offense, interior offensive linemen. I know that Thune 
is a guy who is considered to be uh, pretty versatile. I know I mentioned a couple weeks ago that he played his entire senior year at NC State. He actually played left tackle for the Wolfpack as opposed to left guard. So, I mean, he's he's kind of a, a, a versatile guy, but the rest of these guys strike me as guards. Like, uh, it was either Shaq Mason or Trey Jackson. I'm blanking on which one, but uh, I think it was Shaq Mason. Played guard at Georgia Tech. Like, they ran a triple option. They threw the ball maybe, like, two times a game. Like, you know what I mean? So, I don't know. The The whole offensive line situation right now is kind of perplexing to me. I don't know why they didn't go out to get more tackles. I don't know why they have so many guards. I mean, this like, what about Ryan Wendell, who can play guard and center? You know what I mean? All these different guys. So, there's another area. You also have defensive tackle. You're bringing in a lot of new guys. You know, Terrence Knighton brought in. Uh, you brought in Frank Curse, And then you still have Alan Branch. You still have Malcolm Brown, who is probably going to blossom into a starter this year. And then all these other guys. Vincent Valentine you drafted in the, the third or fourth round. Um, Joe Volano, who has you know, contributed in the past. All these different guys. So the defensive line. I'm not worried about the defensive line. I think that's an area where you're going to be interchanging guys throughout the game anyway. So that's a spot where if you have, you know, four or five guys who can all contribute, then you are golden. And I think the Patriots definitely have four or five guys who can contribute. So we're definitely liking liking that. And uh, finally, the one that really is kind of interesting to me, the ones that are really interesting to me are running back, wide receiver, and cornerback. So as far as cornerback goes, Malcolm Butler, Logan Ryan, and then your second-round pick, Cyrus Jones. Those are your roster locks. But you're still going to need guys. I mean, it's not like... So we'll look at it and we'll say, okay, the Patriots have been running, mainly been running the nickel defense as their base defense pretty much because, for the most part, teams will come out you come out at you with you know three wide receivers or two wide receivers and a tight end who can receive the ball and... Or, or running back threat, things like that. So you're, you're generally going to be, and Belichick has said this in the past, you know, they've been moving more towards a nickel defense as a as more of a base defense. So you're probably going to need three guys at least to contribute, and then you need a couple more guys for depth. So we've got Butler on one side, Ryan on the other side, and then Cyrus Jones in the slot potentially, which I, I think he'll be the slot receiver. I mean the slot corner, excuse me, uh, Cyrus Jones. That's what I think. And then, as far as the rest of the stuff, you've got, you know, Justin Coleman is the only guy who played a snap for the Patriots at corner last year. Daryl Roberts, who was drafted and then IR'd last year. EJ Biggers was just signed. And then you've got four undrafted free agents, Jonathan Jones out of Auburn, Cravon LeBlanc out of, I believe, uh, Florida Atlantic, uh, Vangelo Bentley out of, I'm not even sure, uh, Illinois, I believe. And then Brock Vereen, I'm not even sure where he came from. So that's going to be a very interesting position battle as well. I mean, is Cyrus Jones going to outright win that job as a rookie? Justin Coleman, who was an undrafted guy. Dow Roberts, who, from everything we've heard, is a really athletic guy, a really fast guy. But he, like I said, he was IR'd almost right away last year. So um, we'll see... We'll see how, how well he does. But other than that, I mean, those are the positions that I want to look at. I want to look at corner. I want to look at 
Uh, wide receiver, I want to look at running back, interior offensive line, defensive line, all these different positions. The, the Patriots have, by no means are, are all set as far as their roster goes. There's going to be a lot of roster moving, guys. There's probably going to be players who you saw last year who are going to get cut. They're not going to play. I'm looking at guys like like Bolden, maybe even LeGarrette Blunt. I think those guys could end up not on the team if if someone else steps up. I really have high hopes for DJ Foster. I'm not sure. I think it's just the numbers that are kind of blowing me away. I mean, in college, he, he, he had like 5,000 all-purpose yards in college and, and didn't get drafted. I mean, I don't know what the deal with him is, but... There were several teams going after him. The second the draft ended, there were several teams. The Houston Texans, uh, the Arizona Cardinals, the Patriots, a couple other teams were going after him. And he picked the Patriots. So hopefully uh, hopefully he can get on the team and make an impact. But, I mean, is there any? does anyone think that James White has a guaranteed roster spot even though he played almost all of last year? Because I don't. You know what I mean? So I feel like there's going to be a lot of talk like that going on over the next few weeks. But uh, listen, let's uh, stop hearing from me about all this stuff. Let's talk to a guy who actually knows what more of what he's talking about. I'm talking about uh, Patriots beat writer from MassLive.com, Kevin Duffy. And uh, the interview with Kevin Duffy is brought to you by SeatGeek. Have you ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? Uh, most sites make it complicated. They try to sneak in all these huge fees at checkout. Uh, it's just a huge mess. That's why you need SeatGeek. Uh, it's the best ticketing app out there. Uh, they've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports tickets, concert tickets, anything you want. Um, I personally love SeatGeek. Uh, I've used it several times finding uh, tickets for Red Sox games in the city, uh, trying to go to Celtics games back when they were making their playoff run. Uh, I've grabbed a couple concert tickets over there, so I've used it a bunch of times. I love it. I have, this, have the app on my phone. Um, I used it the other day to look at concert tickets now that uh, you know summer's coming around, warm weather, outdoor concert tickets, all that stuff. Um, SeatGeek has, has taken all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. It's, it's great. Uh, they pull all the tickets available on every other site and bring it all into one place so you save time, you never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events, and uh, SeatGeek will let you know if the ticket prices fall for that event. So, I mean, that's everyone's trying to save money, right? Uh, even better... Every ticket on SeatGeek is ranked based on value, so you can immediately find the underpriced seats. Uh, before you buy, you can use the detailed maps that they give you to see the view from your seat, whatever you need. Um, best of all, they're always honest. They're always upfront. Uh, unlike StubHub, they'll show you the full ticket price from start to finish. Never try to trick you with huge fees on the checkout page or anything like that. Um, but listen, guys, if you want to get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase, all you've got to do is download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click on add a promo code, and enter the promo code CELTICSBEAT, which is all one word with no space in between. That's C-E-L-T-I-C-S-B-E-A-T with no space in between, and SeatGeek will send you a $20, uh, they'll send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It uh, doesn't get any better than that, right? So download the free SeatGeek app and pro- enter the promo code CELTICSBEAT today. All right, we are here with uh, Patriots beat writer from MassLive.com, Kevin Duffy. Uh, Kevin, how's it going, man? Good, good. Thanks for having me. 
Anytime, anytime. So uh, let's get right into it. Obviously, OTAs started this week. Uh, we had media access on Thursday. So just give me your kind of uh, takeaways, three big takeaways from, from OTAs at this early stage. Uh, three. I mean, it's it's hard because it, you, you want to, as a beat writer, you want to draw like strong, firm conclusions and kind of come out of that OTA session with you know, thinking definitively about things. So it's very hard to do that because you're talking about watching guys in T-shirts and shorts, really no contact. The offensive and defensive lines aren't really – you can't really grade those guys at all. And it's hard to even grade receivers because just there's no there's no press coverage or anything like that. But with all that said, I would say the big takeaway was, for me, uh, Martellus Bennett looked pretty good in, in day one that we saw. We're going to get to see uh, mini camp and two more OTA sessions. So we'll have a – bigger uh, uh, base to kind of to draw from here in a couple of weeks. But uh, Martellus Bennett is just a, is a monstrous guy. I mean, he's 6'6", 273, moves really well for his size. So that's something that we didn't know. But seeing it in person, I think, was one of my takeaways. Another takeaway would be Jimmy Garoppolo, I thought, looked pretty good. I think he looked a little more refined, a little sharper than he did in the uh, spring and summer last year when he kind of had a tendency to hold the ball a little bit too long. I think he was a little more confident with his reads and, and that sort of thing. And on the flip side of that, Jacoby Brissett, who is the quarterback that drafted in the third round, I think looked like a rookie, which is expected to an extent because, I mean, yeah, he's only been practicing for three days. So there were times where Brissett held the ball a little bit too long where he kind of uh, he scrambled out of the pocket a little early, didn't really go through all of his reads. And uh, I think that that's going to be the case with most rookie quarterbacks. It was the case with Garoppolo, even in his second year at times. So that, that too, wasn't a total surprise. But those would be my three takeaways. So just for uh, people who, who aren't necessarily uh, up to snuff on OTAs and things like that, they're mainly running seven-on-seven seven drills, nine-on-nine uh, yeah. nine drills, stuff like that, right? Yeah, it's seven-on-seven, eleven-on-eleven. There are actually no individual like uh, receiver corner one-on-one battles yet. So that doesn't happen until training camp. So it really is, it's limited. It's hard to, and I know that's not what people want to hear, but it really is hard to, to make uh, absolute conclusions from OTAs. It's just, it's basically a passing camp. And even the, even the, the way that the receivers are covered is, it's not realistic. It's not like a game speed kind of thing sometimes. So it's it's hard to really draw much from it. See, because that's what I'm really looking forward to. I'm really looking forward to see the 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 new receiving core, so to speak, all the new guys that we brought in and all the new corners that we brought in. Uh, I'm looking to see those guys do battle with each other. I want to see who's going to come out as the fourth cornerback. I want to see who's going to come out as the, the fourth wide receiver. Uh, who do you think has maybe a leg up on that job right, up, right away? Yeah, those are two of the interesting positions, I think, because the bottom of both those depth charts are kind of unsettled. So you have... I guess we'll start with receiver. The, the locks for receiver are Edelman, Amendola, Chris Hogan, and Malcolm Mitchell, the fourth-round pick. So that probably leaves one spot at receiver, and you have a host of guys competing. So you have Keyshawn Martin, who signed a two-year extension in January and has 600000 in guaranteed money. So just by that alone, I would think that he's probably the, the favorite to win the number five receiver job. And then competing with him, you have Aaron Dobson, who's everyone, everyone has written off. Um, and I mean, physically, Aaron Dobson is a talented guy. There's a reason why he was picking the second round. Uh, it has not come together yet, but he's still here. So he has one more chance, I guess, to make the team and, and do something. And then um, 
at the bottom of the depth chart too. You have Devin Lucian, the seventh round pick, Nate Washington. So you have a host of guys there. I'd say Martin has the leg up. Uh, and then at corner, the locks are Malcolm Butler, Logan Ryan, uh, Cyrus Jones, the second round pick. And then you have a bunch of guys competing for the four or five job. You have Daryl Roberts, who was the seventh rounder last year, is an excellent athlete, ran like a 4.33 or 4.36, um, had like a 6.663 cone, which is, which is awesome. Uh, you have um, Justin Coleman, the undrafted free agent, who was the nickelback last year, played a lot, uh, had a lot of experience. You have EJ Biggers, a free agent they signed. You have Brock Marine. You have three undrafted free agents. Uh, Jonathan Jones of Auburn is probably the most prominent among them. Ran a 4-3-3-40. So there's a bunch of guys there. And, again, that's kind of uh, – that will sort itself out in training camp. And I do think the one interesting wrinkle there, especially your wide receiver, is that Edwin and Amendola are hurt. So it's going to give a lot of those other guys a chance to get first-team reps and see what they can do, basically, with Brady. And that that will go a long way in determining – uh, which one of those guys makes the team and which doesn't. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. Obviously, Edelman and Amendola not getting any work into yesterday because they're coming off uh, surgeries, uh, Edelman on his foot, Amendola on his knee. So does that, like you said, that opens up the, the, the door pretty much for all these other guys to maybe really contribute? Yeah, and that's uh, – and, and even I said it's for – you know, I was talking about the number five spot, who's going to make a team, but it also opens the door for Chris Hogan and Malcolm Mitchell to just get more reps with Brady early on if Edelman and Amendola aren't participating in, in training camp and in mini camp in a couple of weeks. Because, I mean, Chris Hogan is a new guy. He's going to have to develop some kind of chemistry with Brady. So there's always, I would say, a silver lining in, in things, and that would be the silver lining in, in the Patriots situation where the top two receivers are banged up is that you're going to have the free agent signee and the rookie get a lot more work with Tom Brady. And that's going to probably help you in the long run. I, uh, I have been hearing a lot about Tom Brady working with the different tight ends uh, over the, the course of the week. Uh, I heard that, you know, he was throwing some touchdown passes to Martellus Bennett. Uh, he was getting some work in with Clay Harbor, another uh, free agent from Jacksonville that we signed. And I've been hearing a lot about this kid, AJ Derby, who we did not see at all last year. Uh, can you tell me anything about him, six-round pick? Yeah, A.J. Derby's a good athlete. Um, he's a guy who played only one year of tight end at Arkansas. So he was a college quarterback at Iowa State first. He transferred to Arkansas and uh, 6'5", 255 or so, runs really well. Uh, he was IR'd early last season, like days into training camp. So no one really has seen much of him at all. But I know when they drafted him that there's definitely some optimism with him as a developmental player just because of how athletic he is. And he's – He's raw at the position, but how many times have we seen where a, a guy comes in, a tight end, who hasn't played the position before and ends up developing into a pretty good player? So I, I would view him still as a developmental player. And just based on the on the depth that they have there, I mean, Gronk, Gronk's obviously on the team. Uh, Martellus Bennett's obviously on the team. I think Clay Harbour's going to be on the team. So there's three right there. So it, AJ Derby might not make the 53-man roster, but he's probably going to be a guy that looks to crack the squad. and um, try to develop um, if they want to hold on to him if he shows not promising camp now kev this is a, an opinion question for you and i i'm praying to god that this is the case does it look like the patriots are moving back towards their two tight end dominant offense because i've been begging for them to go back to the to the rob gronkowski aaron hernandez style of offense where they attack with those two tight ends since they lost aaron hernandez does it look like they're moving back towards that with all these signings 
Yeah, I think they're going to have to, especially early in the year if Edelman and Amendola and Deion Lewis aren't quite what they usually are. And I think that even if they were, I, I do believe that they they would move gravitate more to the two tight end set. I, you know, last year when they signed Scott Chandler, they probably wanted to, but it just didn't pan out because Scott Chandler, he wasn't as good as people thought he was. And I don't think – I think early on, like, he just never really clicked with Brady. He had some drops early in the season. He just kind of was in the doghouse, uh, for lack of a better term. So, Martel Bennett is clearly a better player than Scott Chandler. So, I uh, I definitely think that, that he's going to get a lot of snaps. He'll get a lot of reps, and obviously Gronk will too. So, I agree with you. I think we'll see more of that. And uh, let's talk a little bit about running back as well. I feel like there's like 15 guys that we have at the running back position right now battling for maybe one or two spots. LeGarrette Blunt, Brandon Bolden seem like the guys of James White. Seems like guys that, okay, there's your three running backs, but then there's still, you know, Donald Brown, this kid DJ Foster, who they actively went after as an undrafted free agent, uh, mm-hmm. Julia Sefug, all these guys. What what are they going to do about running back? Since it's, Especially since it's a position that's not really featured in this offense. Yeah, well, a lot of it, I mean, Deion Lewis is a lock, obviously, and judging by Mike Reese's report from a couple of weeks or from last week, it's there's optimism that Lewis will be good to go week one. Um, again, who knows if he's going to be himself or a hundred percent week one, but he might be on the field. So anyway, uh, Lewis is a lock. LeGarrette Blunt, uh, before the draft, I didn't think he was a lock, but they didn't draft a bigger back. I believe Blunt would be a lock too. Bolden, I mean, Bolden they love, especially because of the special teams value. So I would tentatively say he's a lock, but I wouldn't be – I wouldn't be stunned if they cut him and opted to keep like Donald Brown instead of him, just because Donald Brown I think might offer more as an actual running back. Like Bolden, the sample size in New England's big enough to, and he really hasn't done much as a as a running back. Uh, the competition to me is between uh, Donald Brown, James White, and DJ Foster, and it's possible that one of those guys makes the team. It's possible that two make it and in the event that to make it you would think Bolden would be the guy who gets cut so anyway uh, I mean White White had some good moments last year but he's he's underwhelming as an athlete he can't run the ball at all so there are definitely some shortcomings with him and uh, I think that's why they signed Donald Brown that's why they went after DJ Foster so I look at it as the best of those three is going to make it in camp and that's going to be a pretty intense battle because even though they're technically the backup to Deion Lewis if Lewis isn't full go early in the year, that player is going to play a pretty big role. Yeah, I'm I'm really intrigued by this DJ Foster kid. I mean, I, I watch as much college football as I can. I saw a couple Arizona State games. Um, he didn't necessarily jump off the page to me, but when I, you look at his stats and, you know, in high school he rushed for 60 touchdowns in one season and he <laughs> one of the only one of, one of only five NCAA players to have, you know, 2,000 rush yards, 2,000 receiving yards in a career. It sounds like he's a really dynamic athlete, and it sounds like he's a guy who can both catch the ball and run the ball. Yeah, I think if, was, got, if you're if you're looking for a guy to back up Deion Lewis, this might be the guy. Yeah, that was my takeaway from after they drafted him, and just kind of looking at his his highlights and having heard of him a little bit and looking at his stats. I mean, he had a tremendous college career. I think he had like five thousand yards from scrimmage in college and uh, sixty TDs or something like that. And, so uh, my first thought was, like, why wasn't this guy drafted? He's not even that undersized. It's like 5'10", 193, 195. It's really not that small. There's a lot of third-down backs in the league that are that size. So 
yeah, I believe like you that he's going to have every opportunity to stick. And um, I know the hype on him is going to be out of control. I think fans are really pumped up about him. And uh, like kind of how I said earlier, you know, it is only mini camp. Like he looks, he looks pretty fast. He looks like he had the best burst of the backs on the field. So not including Lewis. Um, I think Donald Brown moves pretty well too. Donald Brown's been a guy who in Indianapolis had a year of really good production in that offense as their, as their number one running back. And in San Diego, he was hurt a lot and things didn't really work out, but he's the kind of player that I could see Bill Belichick liking too. So I, yeah, like I said before, it's going to be a, a intense battle between the three, three of those guys, uh, James White included. Yeah. A lot of people seem to forget that Donald Brown was a first round pick way back when, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible that people forget that, that, that quickly, but, um, all right, Kevin. Let's uh, let's get it over with. Let's talk a little Deflate Gate because I know that that's uh, what everyone loves to do. Um, sure. Couple couple things happened this week. Obviously, um, one thing that really kind of surprised me and that I I honestly did not think would happen is that the Patriots filed an amicus brief on behalf of Tom Brady. I was under the impression that the Patriots were going to stay out of this as much as they could, and then they jump right in on Wednesday and they say, you know, they they say some pretty some pretty harsh things about about the league and their discipline. Yeah, they did. I mean, I guess it, I don't know if it really surprised me because they have the whole time, although they hasn't been like official in, in the legal system, haven't been fighting the NFL, but they have been updating their Wells Report context website with, um, you know, pro Patriots articles, anti-NFL articles, articles uh, basically just smashing Goodell. So it's pretty clear how they feel about the whole thing. And I don't know if they needed to do that. I also, I'm not, I don't think I'm a, enough of a legal expert to tell you how much I will even help Tom Brady. Cause it's not like they, you know, when you read what an amicus brief is supposed to do, it's, it's a third party who's going to provide new information through the case. They're not providing new information. They're just providing what their opinion on it is. And I think everyone knows what their opinion is anyway. So it might not sit well with Fidel and the lead that they decided to do that um, publicly and do it, kind of through the court system because they hadn't done that before. But I don't know how much of a difference it makes and what ultimately happens with this thing. I'll be honest with you. I think it's, I think you're right. I think it's not going to have much of a, of an impact. I think it really is. I think it might be Robert Kraft just sticking up a middle finger to Roger Goodell and saying, listen, you can't yeah. just keep messing with me like this. It probably is. I mean, there's definitely, <laughs> there's bad blood there. Uh, clearly, even though, in public, when when either is interviewed about the other, I think they always try to say the right thing. But maybe it's just reached the point where, and maybe it's just the kind of thing where everyone has, everyone goes through good days and bad days. Where sometimes you're confrontational, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you just want to let things go. Maybe Robert Kraft uh, one week was just really pissed off about it, and he said, "I don't want to let this go. I want to let's 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 show everyone how we really feel." So, it, yeah, I mean it. I, I just kind of saw it and I almost rolled my eyes because it's just been such a long process and there's been so much of it, even with the Wells report in context. And it's just like, okay, we get it. Like, I, I don't know how much more that's going to really help the Patriots or, or how much it's going to hurt them. I just don't think it really matters that much. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there. I do have, however, think that now that wasn't the only amicus brief filed this week. Uh, there was a group of 21 professors from some of the most, uh, prestigious universities in this country, MIT, uh, mm -hmm. Cal, USC, Stanford, Boston College, all these different places, um, they filed a brief saying, look, the ideal gas law is a thing. 
this this happened if you know it will it will cause the ball pressure to drop approximately 61% of all games since 1960 uh had uh, footballs that dropped in air pressure below 12.5 psi i mean i think this one might actually help them uh, when i saw uh, they they got out outfield outdoor temperature data for more than 10,000 outdoor nfl games since 1960 yeah. i thought wow if they're getting all that data that that might really help the the Patriots case in this one, Tom Brady's case, excuse me. Yeah, I mean the science end of it has been pretty sketchy the whole time, just because. I mean the league doesn't have starting points for the footballs in the AFC Championship. It's also game. mind-numbing, to be honest. It's yeah, mind yeah I mean they're they're relying totally on Walt Anderson's recollection, which, I mean he could just he could not even have it. Maybe they didn't even measure the balls. I don't know. I think the general opinion that I formed through the whole thing is that. It's clear that the NFL was pretty lax with the whole protocol of this. So the the idea that they're going to go out and, and slam you and punish suspend someone four games for something that was never a big deal before they decided to make it a big deal is pretty outlandish. Uh, I don't know how much the science experiments will help just because I think that the, the numbers are so they're just they're off a little bit because you don't know what the starting points are. That I think that you could kind of skew the numbers either way. I think that the argument could be made either way. Like, like you talk about those the the numbers that the professors threw out, and I could say, well, the Colts the Colts footballs that were measured were still deflated more significantly than the Patriots. So what does that tell you? So I, you could go back and forth with all that. And the, the science to me has never been. I mean, that it's just it's an example of how the NFL just botched the whole thing. And they they had they they knew what they were doing. They went in with basically a sting operation, and they still screwed it up. So it just was a an example of the league's incompetence when it came to handling this from literally the, the moment it started to the moment it finishes. The league has been incompetent the entire way. Speaking of the league's incompetence, I mean, any thoughts on the uh, the congressional report that was released this past week talking about how the NFL uh, actively tried to influence the concussion data? And then Roger Goodell goes out and says, oh, yeah, no, I didn't read the report. Like, can you be any more yeah. arrogant? Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, to, I mean, the report was – the report, I would – I would call that like a bombshell report. Like you, that's just a really, really bad look. It's clear that the league, the league's intentions are not in in favor. I mean, the league is is out to make money and keep football popular, and has done that. And when reports like this come out, the opinion that I have, that a lot of people have, is only uh, validated because you know they they basically the the congressional the money that they were going to send to fund this research was going to be put toward a person who had been critical of, C- of the NFL's handling of CT in the past. Then the NFL kind of freaked out when they uh, realized that the, the research was going to be led by this BU professor, and then they backed out of it. And then they tried to, well, in the interim, they tried to get their own guys to be able to conduct the research. So that's just, I mean, it's a very bad look. And the worst look is that Goodell is trying to pretend for whatever reason that he didn't see the report. I have no idea why he wouldn't just say, look, uh, I stand by what our, our PR staff said before. The NFL released a statement when the report came out. So Goodell, like a lot of politicians, like a lot of coaches and athletes do when there's controversy, could have just said, uh, I, I think our statement yesterday speaks for, for myself. That's all I have to say about it. But for whatever reason, he decided to say that he hadn't seen it, which I just – that's when I just throw my hands in the air and I'm like, what, what is this guy thinking about? Why does he think that's a good idea to say that? So I have no answer for, for why 
the commissioner would say that, but it certainly was not uh, a good look for him. I thought the exact same thing, Kev. I, I threw my hands up and said, this guy has no connection with reality. It's, it's <laughs> I unbelievable. Yeah, it really yeah is. It's, it's bad, yeah. All right, Kev. So uh, this week we've got two practices, right, June 1st and 2nd, and then a three-day mini camp next week. Um, what, what are we looking for? Are we getting more contact as we go along here? Where, when are we going to start seeing guys hitting each other? No, that's not until training camp. So it's going to be really the same kind of thing we've seen uh, for the rest of mini camp. And that's fine, but it's it's when uh, the pads go on in uh, training camp is when you're really going to – the position battles are going to really uh, start to really sort themselves out, especially on the along the lines. Like along the offensive and defensive line, you can't judge anything off what you see in training – in minicamp and OTA. So that'll that'll wait till uh, late July. We'll start to get into that. Until then, it's just looking at guys in shorts and T-shirts. All right, Kev. Thanks a lot for coming on, man. We'll uh, Hopefully we'll get you on around training camp so we can talk about guys hitting each other, all right? All right, awesome. All right, Kevin Duffy of MassLive.com, Patriots beat writer. Be sure to follow him on Twitter, at Kevin R. Duffy. Kev, thanks a lot, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, great stuff from Kevin Duffy of MassLive.com. Be sure to follow him on Twitter, as I said, at Kevin R. Duffy. Um, listen, guys, we're about to run out of time here, so I just wanted to address this real quick. We, you heard me talk about it a little bit with Kevin at the end of the uh, interview there. Uh, the NFL, a congressional study has found that the NFL uh, apparently tried to influence the research, uh, the concussion research that had been done um, by steering grants away from uh, a Boston University professor. So uh, the NFL agreed back in 2012 to donate lots and lots of money, tens of millions of dollars, to concussion researches, uh, uh, things of for overseen by the National Institutes of Health, um, which is good. I mean, everyone kind of was like, they, okay, they should be doing this, right? Um, according to a study conducted by the uh, a congressional committee and released on Monday, um, this is a quote from the uh, from the report. Our investigation has shown that while the NFL had been publicly proclaiming its role as funder an accelerator of important research, it was privately attempting to influence that research, the study concluded. Quote, the NFL attempted to use its, quote, unrestricted gift, unquote, as leverage to steer funding away from one of its critics. Um, that critic was Dr. Robert Stern, who is the chief of the CTE department at Boston University. Um, you know, the NFL came out and rejected all accusations um, it was conducted by Democratic members of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. Quote from the NFL, There is no dispute that there were concerns raised about both the nature of the study in question and possible conflicts of interest. These concerns were raised for review and consideration through the appropriate channels. Um, and then, you know, they asked Roger Goodell about it uh, at the league meetings, and he basically was just like, nope, haven't read it, haven't read the report, don't know, blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, being just arrogant about it, as arrogant as he is. Um, it's just awful, man. Honestly, like, stand up, and you know your game is hurting players. Like, you know it. It's been shown. And every, over and over and over again, all these owners will just say, oh, well, you know, well, you know, it's, the, the research is inconclusive. There's no way to really tell. You know what I mean? It's, we have no idea. And then they say, okay, well, 
We have no idea. So we'll fund people who can figure it out for us. But you know what? We actually don't want to figure it out. Figure it out. We want to figure it out on our terms. We want to, you know, make it so... Yeah, sure, I mean, you can get a concussion, but it's really not as dangerous as everybody thinks, you know what I mean? That's what they wanted to do. And by doing that, you know, they wanted to steer the, the research away from, from Dr. Stern. They wanted to send the research, uh, give the grant to someone who was, you know, more in line with their their rationales and their guidelines and things like that. It's just another thing that the NFL has done to show that there is no possible way you can trust this league when they say anything. And, you know, I mean, if they're going to be messing with congressional reports and concussion data and the National Institutes of Health and all these different things, if they're going to be tampering with that kind of stuff and trying to influence information from there. Who's to say they're not influencing the information in the Deflategate case? Who's to say they're not covering things up and changing PSI levels and all these different things? Who's to say they're not? I don't understand how any judge can look at this league and say, yeah, well, I mean, they're obviously doing everything on the up and up. So, I mean, you know, there's no way for us to, there's no reason for us to question their integrity. There's every reason to question their integrity. Every reason. This is just the latest reason. And on that happy note, uh, that's going to do it for today's Patriots Beat podcast, guys. Um, Listen, if you want to help support the show, please give us a, a subscription, a rating, and a review on iTunes and Stitcher. Um, that'd be great. That'd really help us out a lot. Um, today's show is presented to you uh, by the SeatGeek ticketing app. Once again, remember to use the promo code CELTICSBEAT for a $20 rebate when you download the, the mobile app. It's a great deal. It helps us support the show. It you know really means a lot to us. So, And uh, I want to give a shout-out to everyone who tuned in and listened. Thank you so much. You're uh, the lifeblood of our podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, uh, Kevin Duffy from MassLive.com. Um, for CLNS Radio Executive Producer Larry Ace Russell, um, the founder of the CLNS Radio, Nick Gelso. Uh, my name is Michael Longi. I've been your host. This is the Patriots Beat Podcast, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks.